This episode is brought to you by Affordable Drill Towers. Founded in 2016 by our good friend Steve Sanguidoce, a retired Houston, Texas firefighter, the Affordable Drill Tower was designed and built with functionality and versatility in mind for any training ground. As a standalone training tower and add-on to an existing burn building or connect setup, the Affordable Drill Tower packs a massive punch at an affordable price tag. With over 50 towers across the country, from Massachusetts to California, Montana to Texas, professionally engineered, NFPA and ISO compliant, the Affordable Drill Towers brings the versatility to your training ground. From Main Street USA, the small town fire company in their back parking lot, to the training grounds of the largest metropolitan fire academy, the Affordable Drill Tower fits the bill for price and functionality. Check them out at AffordableDrillTowers.com. And two things I like to talk about also when talking about our friends over at Affordable Drill Towers. One, their customized training program. They have the ability to bring some of the best talent from across the country to your home turf after the install of the Affordable Drill Tower. Designing a customized training program for you and your department, Steve will facilitate some of the biggest and brightest names of the American Fire Service to come in and work with you and your department. And secondly, and I think most important, is Steve's belief in need over greed. The affordable drill tower company gives back to not-for-profits that support organizations in the American Fire Service. Organizations such as the Joey D Foundation, which is near and dear to Steve Sanguidoce's heart, as well as many other not-for-profits that he takes a part of. He takes great pride in providing funding for organizations that push this job forward. So check them out. Steve and Dennis over at Affordable Drill Towers. Send them an email at info at affordabledrilltowers.com. Check them out on social media. And their YouTube page is kicking butt with great information, training nuggets, and information about their towers. So check them out, Affordable Drill Towers, and let them know Jeremy over at National Fire Radio sent you. This episode's brought to you by Ridgeway Leatherworks. Ridgeway Leatherworks is a firefighter-owned and operated business, as well as a family-run business, and that's what I love about it. Rob and his family are passionate about their customer service and the quality product and craftsmanship they put out for the emergency services. Rob's been on the show. We've been to his uh, his business. We've seen them in action. I've even tried to hand paint radio straps. I promise you, it is not as easy as what the final outcome looks like. The product is so good. It's so clean and crisp. And yet, man, it takes that steady hand. Rob's become a near and dear friend of our podcast. And you hear that over and over when we talk about our sponsors, that they're friends, supporters. And that's what this networking community is all about, is supporting one another. Ridgeway Leatherworks. Rob Meyer, crushing it. Quality and craftsmanship is number one. Customer service is right there with it. From custom radio straps, universal radio holsters, chin straps, flashlight holders, anti-sway straps, and locker tags made out of leather, there's plenty of opportunity along the way when you deal with Ridgeway Leatherworks. So check them out at RidgewayLeatherworks.com. Find them on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And tell Rob you heard about him on the National Fire Radio platform and give them a little pluck and tell them keep up the good work we need to support our firefighter owned businesses and especially family run businesses where his two daughters and his wife help out day in and day out along with his other employees so again ridgeway leatherworks check them out at ridgewayleatherworks.com and find them on all your social media channels 
Hey everybody, Jeremy National Fire Radio. Today's podcast is a special treat for me. Uh, the gentleman on the other line right now, the guy holding here, listening to this intro, is somebody that actually is super important to me. He doesn't even know that, but he is. Um, and I'll tell you why. This gentleman, he's a captain with Cal Fire in the Napa Valley region of California. 21 years in the fire service, 20 years with Cal Fire. Captain Cameron Gangbin. Cameron, thanks for joining me, pal. Oh, thanks, Jeremy. It's my pleasure, man. What an honor. I'm going to stroll into this conversation now of why I opened with that phrase that you're important to me. Early on in National Fire Radio, I didn't really have a good grasp of how widespread our platform could or potentially can be. And Terry and I, my wife and I, were in Napa Valley uh, traveling, uh, enjoying some, uh, enjoying the beautiful scenery. And if you've never been to Napa Valley, you need to be there at least once. It is probably one of the more beautiful places I've been to. Um, absolutely gorgeous. And my wife and I were there for a couple days on a longer trip in California. And National Fire Radio was pretty new at the time. Um, I would say maybe a year in. And we passed a firehouse up in the Napa Valley, in the valley up there, and it's pretty isolated. And uh, the firehouse is wide open. Like, and I want to talk about this camera because it's so cool how like the firehouses literally are just open, open aired firehouses, which is so unique to me. And I pull in, I snap a quick picture from the apron, and we leave. And I post it on social media. And later that day, I get a message is like, "Hey man, we follow you guys. Come back if you're still in the area." And we did. I think the next day or or later that day, we came back. Uh, and I think you guys had just gotten back from a fire or a run or something. And, um, it was great. I mean, you guys opened your doors to my wife and I, and you showed us around and we chatted and conversed. And it was just a special moment for me because I'm on the other end of our country from New Jersey to California. And here is a brother opening the doors to me and my wife. Uh, I am forever grateful, man. Cause that, uh, that, interaction we had where we first met was powerful to me and it it really explained to me the importance of the platform and what we were doing and for you to for you to just openly invite us over and to introduce yourself to us uh and just opened your world up to us it was uh it was a moment that i will never forget and i appreciate you man thank you for that Man, that was a uh, thank you. Wow, thank you, Jeremy, and thank you to your wife, Terry. Man, she is uh, a real saint. Man, I, uh, I remember that. I saw you said uh, heading back to heading west side or something like that. I'm like, man, I hope he's I hope he comes to our area, you know. And then I saw you shot a picture of our station in Vallejo. I was like, man, like stop in. I thought that was really cool. And yeah. I remember the and the felt the fellas were all pumped. Like, hey, man, Jeremy from National Fire Radio is gonna probably which, stop by and. Which is the silliest thing, man. When people say that, I, I get weird. I get uncomfortable with that because I'm just, listen, man, I'm just a meathead, right? Like, I, I, I think what the best part about National Fire Radio was just formalizing buffing. That's it. Yeah. That's it. I just travel the country now, and we've gotten to the point where a lot of people know who we are on the platform. So it's literally like just formalizing the ability to go buff in any city or town in the country. It's amazing. It truly for is. Me, for me, it was my for me, it was my first outlet of podcasting, getting outside of my bubble, though, and, like, listening to people from other areas, saying stuff that I was – I hadn't heard before. So, at the first time you hear it, it's, like, a little uncomfortable, and then you kind of dive in to see what they're talking about. You yeah. And their culture, like, oh, oh, that makes sense. So, you you, you were kind of the platform for me to kind of 
get outside my culture, my area, my, my influence and kind of look outside the door. And, and uh, so I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, that's cool. And, and I, I appreciate that because it makes me feel like we're on the right path then and we're doing the right thing here, you know? And I remember after uh, we got the chat for a little bit and then my wife and I left, I like secretly said over to you, like, Hey man, if any work comes in, you let me know. Cause I'm in the area for like the next two nights <laughs> and I go shoot me a text. If anything comes in, because I'd love to see operations in California. And at the time you guys were just coming off some really tough fires. Uh, and yeah. when we say fires, I mean like consuming part of the Napa Valley region. I mean, we're talking large wildfires. Yeah. Yeah, and and even that to to say that like that those areas a lot of those areas that you stayed in and then you those wineries that you visited yeah and a lot of those communities that you drove through they're gone I like, know they are I've heard God they're, they're yeah yeah it's uh I mean if, if if you're from a if you're from another part of uh, the country other than California it, it's really common that a lot of departments will separate their you know their structural response and then their like kind of forestry response or wildland. In California, it, it, you're, it, we play both. Like, there's no separation. Whether you go to a structure fire, a medical aid, or or a large wildland fire, uh, you know, every, everybody in California has uh, is set up to do that. We're not separate. And so, uh, <clears throat> yeah. So we call it WUI, the Wild Urban uh, Interface, yeah. Wildland Urban Interface. Right. And so, you know, we could, you know, most of our calls are medical in nature, but a large volume of our fire is wildland with a structure component like you know a lot of people will talk about forest fires and forests and, and we have those areas in california but my experience is uh having fires in communities like suburban sprawl yeah um areas like that like it's not uncommon for me to turn the corner and see 20 to 50 houses on fire with people sleeping and i'm not knowing that their house is on fire and and not only that but then take it a couple steps further you're talking more isolated communities typically right and so yeah, you yeah. know you're not you're not pulling into the block with four engines two trucks a rescue <laughs> company and everything else i mean you guys are rolling in with what a four-man engine yeah i happen to work at a big house and we okay have a, uh, we, we have a three engine uh we have a three engine company house so we run three engines out of our house and but still, and each one has three, sometimes four, four guys on it. Right. But even that, you know, when, when you're when you're up against something yeah. so significant like that, like that's you're you're just uh, you're still just a one person engine company kind of operating in a block of origin or community of origin fire. And I I find this conversation very interesting because it's so foreign to me. Like I just don't, I couldn't comprehend that type of volume of fire on arrival where you're talking neighborhoods. Or on fire, and I guess it should be said, and, and just to parallel what you were saying is, you guys are municipal firefighters, but you're also trained to do, uh, you know, wildland urban interface, right? And so you guys do all disciplines, and so you could go very easily from. I think when I was there, there was a, a wildfire, only a couple acres that you hit me up. You sent me a text just to get back to what we were saying. You yeah. Sent me a text, and and my wife and I actually took a drive. And the smoke was blowing into the valley and people were terrified because they just had lived through some of those fires that you were talking about. And people were walking out of the wineries and things like that. And there was smoke in the air. I mean, you could just, I mean, it was irritating. That's how heavy it was blowing through the valley at that time from a smaller fire. And you could see the panic on people's faces because of what they've dealt with. And for you guys to be able to be first in on something like that, 
you never know how the cards are going to be dealt, right? I mean, these are communities that you live in, right? So, I yeah. mean, your family's there, your relatives, your friends, your kids' schools, right? I mean, these are yeah. communities that you guys are entrusted in trying to protect life and property in. And typically, when it comes to a larger scale incident like that, the cards are so stacked against you from the get, no? Yeah. I mean, I'm fifth generation Napa Valley. So when I go to a call, I mean, my mom lives left, my dad lives yeah. right. The hospital I was born in is across the street from me. It's really uncommon for me to go to a call and not it be someone that I know. You know, there's, you know, you, there's a lot of, you know, negative that can go with that. But the positive of, of that is uh, overwhelming, like being a part of my community. But then also the downfall is, is that it's super personal when, um, you know, you got a block of fire or a house that you're familiar with and, uh, you know, you're rescuing folks that you know. Yeah. Or, you know, but, but it's also neat in that common moment, you know, I'll tell you what, some of the most awkward conversations to have with somebody is, uh, you know, breaking into their house in the middle of the night, one o'clock in the morning, they're, they're dead asleep and you're shaking them saying, Hey, your house is on fire. Like a lot of people, you know, think about like someone waking you up in your bed. Like yeah. the first, like I grab my gun, whatever. Sure. Like, sure. So, you know, those conversations have to happen over and over and over throughout the night. And sometimes days, like these are, you know, a lot of times when these fast moving fires are hitting these communities, people have no idea. They move at a speed that you can't, you can't drive to outpace them. They're right. They're moving at a speed. So when you show up and you, you know, you got a house that's, you know, somewhat involved, heavily involved, mostly involved, like we still have to look at it like with an optimism of like, where where can I search and find these people? Because, you know, I, I can't really get too deep into some of the stories, but like, you know, we've, we've found people in, in the strangest places under, under the worst conditions. And, and like, if they, if there's still a chance to save them, like we're going to, we're going to push that. And, um, and, you know, and there's a couple other little different things like in a normal structure fire, like say, you know, you're searching searchable space and you make a grab, like usually by the time you get them out front to the yard and to the ambulance, it's kind of like when you start to stabilize the incident. Well, when you pull someone from, from a burning house in, in the wooly or the wildland, like you may be pulling them out into another environment that was worse than the one that they, they were in. Yeah. So like you pull them from a burning building and then there's no ambulance. Like you got to stuff them in the engine. You got to drive them down a road that's blocked, you know, maybe down to the nearest hospital. And so there, there's a lot more than just, you know, it, it, it's hard to kind of wrap your head around. Like for those who just respond to maybe just a house fire alone, like when you have multiple houses and communities on fires, like they're not, you know, it's not just a grab from the house. It's like, well, how do you get them to, to like medical uh, care at a hospital. I, yeah, so I mean, I'm, many I, layers to it. I'm just trying to wrap my brain around it right now, as you say it, right? And it's like <laughs> you don't the the logistics of it all. Meaning, you know, yeah, you're right, man. We push a line in, we knock the fire down, we make a grab, or or we search the building, and typically the incident starts to stabilize, right? Once we get water on that fire, mm -hmm. you know, for me, typically the incident starts to stabilize. You're right. For you guys, my God, like, and, and not only that, but so as a captain, you're a captain of an engine company or are you in charge of the whole house? How does that work? Uh, both, both. So uh, when I'm on duty, I got three engines there. I'm the captain on duty. So okay. our rank structure goes firefighter, engineer, and then captain. And then our engineers are supervisors. So it's really common for like, I could, I'll be a captain on one of the engines and it might have uh, engineers on the other two engines okay. as, super, as the company officers. So kind of where I'm going with that then, right? It sounds like you guys run as a package for the most part then, right? Especially on a fire or something, right? You're yes. probably, you guys are yeah. running out altogether, right? Yes. Um, 
the interesting thing then is for you as like the company boss, right, of that firehouse with three. I mean, you got your people to worry about, too. And not that not that we don't for, you know, anywhere else in the country. But this is I mean, if you roll up and you have multiple homes on fire with with all the foliage vehicles, outbuildings, you name it. I mean, you're talking fire. Your your people are you guys are scattering, right? Because there's a lot of work that has to be done. And it's the, the the cards are stacked against you, right? So yeah, and that's where I really got to give like a lot of uh, kudos to my agency. You know, Cal Fire, uh, as large as it is, you know, they they train their folks uh, like no other. Yeah, our entry level training for this stuff is uh, is state of the art. It's repetitive. It's it's consistent. So, you know, we we start with a really solid foundation um, through our basic training, but then where real where the rubber really hit, hits the road is the mentoring that goes on at the station and like, and the responsibility of our, you know, backseat firefighter, tailboard firefighter, whatever is, is, you know, from my experiences is usually much greater than most, like the responsibility of that front seat firefighter, because uh, a lot of times on the rig, uh, there's an engineer driving, you know, the operator's driving, the company officer's driving and the firefighters riding what would, the captain seat. Oh, okay. So you have a cat. You have you have a firefighter doing a lot of the navigation and radio communications, and, and stuff, and, and organizing resources for the company officer if they're first at scene. So like, the view the the view of the fi- of our first year firefighter has to be kind of zoomed out, real really big picture, a lot of responsibility, and with that goes a lot of organizational training. Wow. Cal Fire has done just a wonderful job in organizing. Uh, the wooey we go with the wildland urban interface we yeah. call it a menu but we actually have like an uh kind of an uh, organization of how we approach houses in the wooey like how we how we triage houses uh, we have an acronym called SFACS and how we triage a house whether it's a threatened threatened defensible threatened non-defensible uh and then we also and then we have like seven uh tactical strategies that we could we could pick from okay uh, number one you know, number one being probably the most important is a uh, check and go. And that's like the life safety is say you, you know, you get to a house and uh, you punch up the driveway and uh, you know, it, it's, it's mostly involved, heavily involved, whatever, uh, you know, our, we default to check and go, which means we're checking for life and then we're moving on. Yeah. You know, like, we're, like this is, I only got 500 gallons of water. Yeah. And this is right. a very large house. And, you know, so it's like really using the water to protect the search and then possibly just moving on. Cause you just don't have enough to put out that volume of fire. Checking go. Yeah. I, it's incredible. I mean, and, and to throw kudos to your department that, I mean, this is, this, there's so many layers here, right? I'm, I'm just trying to wrap my head around it because I'm also thinking too, you just said, punch it up the driveway. This is, this is rural communities. I mean, I know Napa downtown is pavement, you know, four lane road down the middle Two goes to two lane roads. And yeah, there's paved surface roads and, you know, organized neighborhoods. But then you're talking about the hill country, right? Like the uh, up out of the valley, right? And you're talking about large ranch style homes and, and compounds yeah. and right. I mean, it's just, yeah. And w- wineries and large rule. Yeah. The rule the rural urban interface. So we kind of categorize it as interface and intermix. And like the difference between an interface is where like, say you go to San Diego or you have like a um, suburban neighborhood, like on one side is just all houses. Then you have a street and the other side, like all forest. That would be 
that would be an interface where there's a clear demarcation line of uh, residents and then woodland. But intermix is kind of the area that you saw where there's just kind of sporadic houses yeah. up in the wood, up in the hill. So our fires move from, from both, like uh, some of our major losses have been in the downtown city of Santa Rosa. Like right. that is, you know, coffee park. I mean, most people up until that it burned, it was like, wow, we never thought when we were even that threat, but no, it, it jumped the 101 freeway and took off, burnt down large commercial districts, fucking Kmart's and restaurants and, and you know, thousands of homes and, and like out in the middle of a, just a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an urban environment. And so that you're, you're not just because you're not in the hills doesn't mean you're untouchable here in California. Like it's. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I just have to believe as an outsider that's never experienced something like this. I mean, you mentioned it before, but the speed in which this consumes. I mean, it is, you know, the check and go makes sense, right? I mean, you have limited resources and the fire is just stacked against you. I mean, at some point, it's not manageable. It's not savable. And so, you know, then it becomes what? Life safety priority. And then, you know, and and you're writing off properties as you go because it's the only way to get ahead, no? Yeah, and that was kind of the hardest thing as these major fires started, like, you know, in the last seven years when we started seeing them, is that we're so used to taking action, like, you know, putting hose in the ground, knocking the fire, yeah. you know, doubling down your efforts. And then it, that was kind of the hardest shift for us to actually go to. It's like, hey, it's, uh, you know, and it's not that, you know, yeah, it's like you're, you're the, the faster you can move and search the house, the faster you could punch up the next driveway and search that house. And the faster you search that house, you could go get to the next one. So the quicker you are, the quicker you can move on, which means like no fire suppression, which would be a loss at that. You're not going to be, you know, we don't, we wouldn't have enough water to make an impact. Right. So if, if you could get in and get the search done and then move on and get the search done and move on and get the search done, you know, th- throughout an hour, you could clear a neighborhood or road and just get like a primary search on like, <laughs> that's kind of strange to say, like a primary search on a road, like or a community, you know, that's, that's kind of what we're going for. And that's check and go. And so there's, there's some parameters in the check and go, that we kind of default to so it says like if, if um we do our s facts but check and go is if there's no tra which is, is a temporary refuge area okay. or a safety zone we can only check it and go to actually stay and defend it has to meet a couple criteria that we use the s facts acronym for and it has to have you know it's got to have tras and safety zones and escape routes and stuff like that so you know, for for us to, for us able to stay and defend, like the homeowner would have to do some type of preparation on their own to make it defendable. Yes, makes sense. How important is it to get out into these communities and and learn them? Oh man, you know, I think I think that uh, a lot of our, you know, it's really easy to look at our losses, but uh, our station, we I really count our successes, and I could say a lot of that had to do to local orientation i would have to i have to think so well one of the nights of one of these fires uh you know it was we we punched we punched through a road that we it was it was zero viz it was high heat zero viz it was uh, embers were getting sucked into the engine i mean i had a kind of a new firefighter in the back screaming holy yeah yeah, just terrified and I was in the captain seat convincing my driver, like, we'll be fine. Just keep going. I know this road. I, you know, I learned to drive on it. Uh, we were punching through to get one of our firefighters, mom, you know, that his house was on fire. And so we were punching through it. And I, I, and I always leave that back to like, you know, if we, if I didn't know that road or say we were from out of the area, 
nobody would have came in here and cleared this road. We were able to clear and get uh, so many. I, I think we searched seven or eight houses on that road and got people out just to turn back around and punch back through it and see those houses gone. Wow. Like, you know, we were able to wake these folks up, get them going, get them on the road, get you know maybe their pets and get them down the road to turn yeah. back around 15 min minutes later <clears throat> and to see that like they didn't they wouldn't they would have had zero chance you know and it's like if we hadn't punched down that road if i hadn't known that road i was giving my driver turn by turn direct okay the road's gonna go to the left okay wow. slow down it's gonna go to the right and yeah. he's driving and he's trusting me and it's sure. like if we and, and as we come out and i'll shoot you this video as, as we come out as we come out of this 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 fire you can see all the resources from out of the area staging like turning around they're not going to punch in and now you know so it's like they didn't have local knowledge and it's kind of it's it's frightening when you don't know what's on the other side of that fire you know like well, I, you right. find yourself in a bad spot well that's it right i mean and and so i could only imagine and i can only imagine their faces when you guys come mm -hmm. punching out of it right and everybody else is like holy yeah. crap where are they coming from you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah hopefully i didn't see the look on the, my firefighter in the back yeah know? right yeah that guy's <laughs> like i'm done <laughs> yeah right uh, that's crazy, yeah. but I yeah. that is and and so just take that to my world. How important it is to get out of the firehouse and into the community and learn those back alleys, those setbacks, those water you know, challenging water issues, like all that stuff is so important when it becomes game time. And I can only imagine for you guys with the the complexity of your response area that it's just imperative to really know and understand the community as best as possible. Yeah, those water sources are key. What we found, what, yeah. what I found, uh, I found myself uh, in the middle of the city of Santa Rosa, you know, a highly densely dense populated area. And I went to go, you know, the, the Kmart started on fire, small fire, you know. So I, I hooked to the hydrant and like, hey, let's just hit it with a deck gun. Like, we'll just make a quick knock of this. I hooked to the hydrant. It's the, it was a private hydrant. I spin it up, dead, nothing. Well, <sighs> a couple blocks away we were losing houses by the hundreds so as these houses were chunking or burning away you know the water was spewing it, it dropped the whole system so yeah. hydrant, all hydrants were out of play so even those water sources you may think that are going to be solid like they're usually they're, they're not they're not going to be there so like having those elevated water sources which we you know at the wineries that's what they have and yeah and those ponds and lakes and stuff and then, then water trucks and water tenders and then just being released this episode is brought to you by the Affordable Standpipe Prop. Let's break it down real quick. Steve and the crew at Affordable Drill Towers is doing it again. They've created this fully custom and fabricated standpipe prop to support the fire service. I'm telling you right now, this is a game-changing piece of training equipment. And I want to hop into it real quick. It is designed with a 4-inch manifold of high-strength galvanized Schedule 10 pipe, the cart and manifold are powder-coated red for a durable finish, meaning it's not just a talking piece. It's not something you tuck away on the shelf. This is a training prop that can be wheeled into the classroom and then brought out onto the training ground. And so let's talk about that. In the classroom, there's nothing better than having a hands-on prop in front of the students, in front of the fire companies that are there to learn about standpipe and FDC connections. Having that prop in the classroom allows for a great instructional lecture. And then from there, take the standpipe theory and translate it to the training grounds. You could wheel the cart out that's on casters. You wheel it out into the parking lot. And that same training prop that you just used hands-on in the classroom can now be used hands-on on the training ground by pumping into it and flowing out of it. 
It offers such versatility in its approach. It has a two and a half inch Siamese connection, seven two and a half inch outlets, six of which are standpipe valves, has a water motor gong, sprinkler head with a control valve, and a system pressure gauge. You can also upgrade and put three of the most common field adjustable PRVs. I'm telling you right now, this is a game-changing training prop that needs to be in every fire company or training department across the country. Reach out to Steve and the crew. Info at AffordableDrillTowers.com. Ask for a demo. Ask for information. Or check them out on social media and YouTube. There's plenty of content out there that shows you exactly what the affordable standpipe prop can do for you. This episode's brought to you by Taylor's Tins. Taylor and his crew at Taylor's Tins have been manufacturing aluminum helmet fronts since 2017. With over 200,000 tins in the market, they are a leader in the helmet front space. Custom designed one-offs to department orders, they can turn them around within 24 to 48 hours. Customer service is what they pride themselves on, and they provide nothing but top-shelf product and service to their customers. Check them out at taylorstins.com and check out their full line of product offering. They've always been a very strong supporter since day one with the National Fire Radio podcast and platform. And Taylor and his crew have become dear friends of ours, and we appreciate the support. And at checkout, for a little extra bonus, use coupon code NFR sent me. That's NFR sent me for a discount on your order. Exclusions do apply. Anyway, check out taylorstins.com. For the latest and greatest offerings from Taylor and his crew, and in the words of Taylor, stop burning up leather. Really kind of uh, thoughtful about what you do with your water, making your water work, like where you place it matters. So that's been a huge lesson for us. Yeah, I don't I don't want to lose track of that, you know, lesson, you know, the whole thing with the water, because I want to come back to that, because I want to talk about training with you, because I know that's super important. And I have a few few notes on training quickness, and as training matches reality, as some of the things you're saying. So I want to get back to those. But the one thing I want to ask you, right, before we kind of segue and move on, how... How hard is it to deal with the defeatist kind of complexity that comes with this? Like, I know, you know, the, the highs are very much the highs when you can make, the you know, uh, get people out and, and move them on. But, man, I have to feel there's a lot of times that you guys feel defeated because you're just so outgunned and outmanned. I mean, is that, am I accurate in that statement or is oh, that? Oh, man, you, 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 I mean, you're right on the bullseye and actually it just starts to stir a bunch of emotions because, you know, that's kind of the one thing that I think all of us are still trying to process yeah. and talk about and stuff like that, because it's like, really, uh, it's super personal. Um, you know, like if you ever, you know, I, I can't do it, but if you go on YouTube and kind of listen to some of the radio traffic, uh, you know, it's, it's just one after another, one after another. Yeah. Right. The rescues are happening at such a volume that, you know, if you don't write down the rescue, it's going to be the last time it's, it's, it's announced out because they're coming in. It's such a rapid pace. If you're oh not in gosh. the area, a uh, person's trap, you know, one, two, three, four main street right. uh, on the phone says, can't make person trap next and next one's up. And it's just like this firing off. And if like, you just try to catch streets that are in your area addresses and you write them down. Yeah. There's no check back. There's no confirmation to say that, you know, like is someone going to this, the night, the volume, the volume of nine one one calls. It's so overwhelming and it's so defeating. Like when you yeah. know, like, you know, when you're in the area and you're hearing someone needing rescue and you just know that there's no physical way to punch through what is in front of them. And, you know, it, it, yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. It's personal. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, 
and and to the same fact back to like knowing your area i think that's one that's one of the uh, wins that i i got to search some houses i grew up in like you know like searching a floor plan and no viz like yeah it was it was really comforting and and nice to like you know to go into these homes that that i knew from from childhood and just be able to search them with a confidence that like i didn't miss a spot yes and, and so like when you're talking about the defeat like I, it's really easy to focus on that defeat, but like what we try to do is really capture our wins. And so sometimes you just got to say them out loud, even the little ones. And then I remember, you know, and a couple of things I've done too, is like call people from out of the area. I got this, uh, I got this homie hookup. I don't know if you know him. He's Gary Lane out of uh, Kenton, Ohio. And I do not, uh, I call, uh, yeah, he, he does, he does a lot of teaching around the country with a bunch of different cadres, but, uh, he's a tailboard fireman. He's got, you know, tons of years on the job but he what he does is that um you know he just he's he's really easy to talk to and sometimes i, I call him up sometimes like hey man like my crew and i we're beat up right now like it's really hard to get focused on the mission like what do you got you know yeah and then he'll yeah, he'll send me some calls or something some experiences and then he'll like really put back and focus like why we do what we do because no matter what you want to talk to any firefighter engineer captain battalion chief division chief you always rope it back into like why you why we do what we do like why did you sign up that's something we could all relate to no no matter how much you get detached you, you tie it back into why we signed up and what the mission is like it just it puts that focus back on them and less on me and i don't know man he gary has a great way of, of, of roping me in sometimes awesome. and i appreciate that well i think um yeah a couple things with this right is uh you know one for you you know, you said capture our wins. I think that's super important, right? Because, you know, understanding the mentality that, you know, we're we're dealt a tough hand and, you know, there's nothing you can do to get past it other than do your very best. And and so capturing those wins and counting them and, and memorizing them to share with your crews is that maybe that little uplift, but also the importance of just having somebody you can lean on, somebody you can reach out and say, hey, man, I need something, you know? Um, good for you. Like, I, I think that's, you know, for you to share that it's personal. And, um, and I appreciate you sharing that because I think we all need someone and it could be a brother from the other side of the country or it could be a guy next door. But I think it's super important to have somebody in your life that can help you in your time of, of need. It's important. For sure. <clears throat> yeah. Something, something I heard on your podcast, like one of your early podcasts, it was you and, uh, Nick Esposito is like yeah. one of your first truck tactics one. And I remember yeah. something he said that I just, I took the heart. He's like talking about mentors, like always have a mentor, uh, bo- you know, below you, uh, the same rank and above. And like that, that's cool. I first yeah. heard that, I'm like, oh, I remember that, that. that's great. And, yeah. I, and, and I did it. And man, like if there's some advice I could give you do that, like having like some of my, some of my best mentors are either, uh, you know, I have mentors below my rank, like in the engineer and firefighter and, uh, and also at the captain, like having those mentors below the rank at your rank and above is just, is, that's been huge too. That's cool. Thank you for sharing that. That's, uh, that's great. Well, that I'm sure Nick you. would love to hear that. Yeah. Well, listen, man, that just means that somebody's listening to our podcast. So I appreciate that. Oh. <laughs> that's why when you called me on, like, I'm like, what am I going to talk about? I'll just rehash all Jeremy's podcast. Get out of <laughs> Listen, man, listen, the first, listen, we've been going a half hour already and this has been incredible because it's content we don't talk about. You know, it's not something that I'm familiar with. And that's why it's important to me with this platform is to really capture stories from all over the the job. And, 
you know, I mean, you, what you do on a daily basis is very different than what's being done, say, where I'm from in the Northeast. It's just very different. And it's all the same job, but it's very different in the same regard. So um, let's talk about a couple other things real quick that are passionate to you, too. Uh, you mentioned mentoring. Let's talk about that for a minute. I know um, you stating that you listen to the podcast or what, and you've picked up nuggets here and there. I appreciate that, right? It, it makes me feel good to know that we're bringing something to the table to, you know, if we can offer advice or suggestions or through the conversations with other individuals to be impactful is super important. What does that mean to you? Like mentorships uh, are important. Do you find yourself being in a, in a, in a role that maybe people are starting to look at you or how you carry and conduct yourself might be starting to be construed as, as mentoring others, whether it's intentional or unintentional. Yeah. And, and, and when you're saying that, I'm just thinking like, I'm such the receiver of the, of, of mentors, especially I call them like remote mentors. Like you're one of my remote mentors. Like I listen to your podcast. And again, like you've influenced me probably more than you have any idea. And that's the same <laughs> to go with like, Nick Esposito yeah. and and like and a couple all these other folks sure. that, you know I listen I listen to them and um and you know I've, I've I've been I get the most out of being remote mentored but what that does it gives me something to be able to pass on and mentor others and a lot of people you know I think at work or or maybe if you knew me out you know outside they would say like uh, oh Cameron he really likes training like he's 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 a good instructor or something like that and like that's not my passion at all like it may, may look like, you know, it's a uh, training or an instructor. Like if someone tells me to be an instructor. It's not that I say no, but I don't really want to do it. Like it's not, I'm not in it to be an instructor, but I will do it to mentor. Like I understand like making that connection with a new firefighter, like kind of giving them the roadmap and what that means. And usually I can do it because I've made the mistake. And so I, I don't think I've really forgot where I came from. So I, it's good. When I get a new, when I get a new firefighter, I, I kind of, I mean, I can't, exactly relate to him still but i kind of know what connections to make to make his job like where to focus on and well, like do mentoring there's some commonality there right and the commonality is the job it's the training aspect right you might have moved on in your career with other responsibilities and and other focus but you still hold the commonality of training for the betterment of your company and of your department yeah. And like the best compliment, cause I have a high turnover. We have, we have such a volume of employees. Like we just have high turnover Our, you know, it's not uncommon to move rank every four years. Like that's, that's kind of like your, your tailboard four years, boom, company officer, four years, boom, captain, hmm. you know, battalion chief, division and chief, that's, staff chief. That's like department wide. Yeah. We're, wow. we're so large. We are so large I know. that yeah. we have more jobs than people. So there's, there are avenues to where like, you know, if you want, you can get to the top real fast. Like it's mm. just, you don't have to spend a lot of time in grade. So, you know, a lot of times people are like, well, that's, you know, that's not good. Well, you know, there's also those jobs for those guys who want to be in grade. Like myself, I've, I've usually, I usually stay in grade 10 years, you know, and that's, and I found that to be really uh, helpful. You know, I like, I like yeah, the like sure. guts. Yeah. Uh, but, me but mentoring, like I, I get like you're talking about, well, how do I know that I could, trust this firefighter when you know when it goes down in, in these environments well because i've invested in them and i and we've yes. already you know what i did is i took his basic training and then like doubled down on the foundation i built some rhythm and tempo i built some you know slides that they you know like hey this is our plan a plan a harder plan b and plan c so like he knows they know like what my next move is like i'm i'm an open book i tell him we go through it every like all the time like hey this is plan a you know so 
I love having a constant and then add variables. But if we're just, everything's a variable, then you're just kind of making it up and winging it. So I spend a lot of times uh, with foundational training and, you know, sometimes you kind of see those videos, like we're in a parking lot doing something with no gear, but like you have to start there. You have to start somewhere with some like really basic fundamentals, like, you know, stretching hose, you know, working length, you know, your layout, uh, you know, all that's how to force a door, how to use the tool. And then we can move on to some more, you know, and then we can put it all together. So, man, I've just always been obsessed with how things work, like, you know, mechanically, whatever it is. And so like when when you see the trainings and and you kind of see me kind of focus in on like that, like focusing on a task it's it's such a zoomed in focus um it's just because i'm really passionate and kind of obsessive on like how things work and uh, i think that's what you're seeing on some of those videos i just wrote down a ton of notes because i love how you put it the variable training is winging it and and what i got from that and what i wrote down was be intentional foundational training be intentional they know my next move that's huge like that that mindset then allows for everything else is built in because it comes automatic. Then the level of expectation is there because it's intentional, right? And you know my next move because we work systematically this way. Like that type of setup to me is really well done because it then paints a picture of what the expectation is and the delivery of services is consistent. Yeah, and then also too, if it, if you have if you have that constant, then you know when things are out of place. Yes. Oh, that, oh I love that. And then you then you then you know when to pivot. Like then you'll know. Like you know, I I, I do you know one of one of my secret passions is like elevator training. Like I I don't know what it is, but when it comes to like elevator rescue, I I don't I just got this little passion for it, and uh, so I'll go out with the guys, and they'll, you know I got a plan A all the way to plan B, and it, it's a rhythm. Like this is the way we do it. So if anything goes out of line, then you'll know that we'll be off beat and like something's wrong. And so, you know, anyways, and so I always tell them going into this, like, you know, you may not like it, but this is, this is the rhythm that we're going to fall. Like when, when I open the door, I want your hand like this. I want your foot right here. This communication has to happen exactly like this. As I drop down every time I'm going to turn on the light and I'm going to put it in inspection mode. Okay. And like, and then we're gonna have another dialogue and communication. So if all, and, and then we do it over and over and over. And then sometimes if I get distracted, something comes up, they remind me and they get me back on track or they, they could pick up when something's not going normal. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's bad. It just means we may have to make an adjustment. Something's out of place. You could key in and make a decision. So I, I really love having that rhythm. And then also giving the firefighters uh, some real directions on like, when you see this, do that. Not like just like, well, it's it all matters and like, well, it's all matters on conditions and stuff like that. Like that's garbage. I think I think like you know when you see this, like do that. I, I like that. I dude, I you have no idea. You are crushing this. I love it. I wrote down when you have constant, you then know when something is out of place. I think that is so yeah. smart. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. You're awesome. And and. On top of that, too, right, it should be said, the other aspect of it, too, right, is that you guys are quite remote in the grand scheme of things, right? And so you're not in a major metropolitan area with multiple companies right around you and so on. So your training relies on you guys in the in the hills and, and up in, in remote areas being 
intentional about your training so that you stay constant and vigil, right? Like you, your training is happening. I was at your facility and to get back to what I opened with, with how your firehouses are, are set up, they're very much like open air type fire departments, right? Fire companies, right? Mm -hmm. So the doors are basically always up and it's like, I don't know if you want to call them lanai's or whatever you want to call it, but it's a lot of openness. The air is constantly, I mean, the weather there is absolutely gorgeous. And Mm -hmm. it's just, it's, it's open air. So you have your own training ground there too, basically, right? Where you guys are constantly flowing lines, putting hose in the street uh, and so on. And I want to get into that because the importance of, real-time training with being intentional, the quickness. You mentioned quickness before. If it allows you, if if you're, if you know your job, it allows you to punch up driveways quicker. And if I can search this one quicker, I can get to the next one quicker, which then allows me to get to the next one quicker. So quickness matters, but so does thoroughness, right? And so yeah. training matches reality. When I watch you train on some of your social media pages and what you guys do there, it is super intentional and super fast paced. I mean, you guys are moving those lines with speed when I watch, right? And it's intentional, right? Yeah, and and that's kind of the cool thing is since uh, you know, like you you've kind of mentioned that we're a bunch of little fire departments in one large area, and so that was kind of the intention behind the social media was to kind of reach those, you know, those those one engine companies that may have you know one or two people on them. And, you know, they're hungry. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe they don't have a culture that supports what we're doing. So that was a way for them to show deliberate training and stuff that they could train on individually or a skill like, you know, masking up with your gloves on like, Hey, you know, this is possible. Or, uh, you know, this is, this is a way to, you know, a quick way to throw a ladder or something like that, or deploy a hose or showing them like, you know, how to, you know, just kind of give them the idea, you know, some people have never heard of like water mapping or, you know, or just kind of like where, where you put your water matters. Sure. Well, so especially for you guys. That. I mean, right. water, water matters to you guys because every drop counts. That's it. That's really it. So it's like, you know, it, you know, traditionally, I think, you know, in the early 2000s when I first started here, you know, it was pretty common to start your fire attack from the outside and then come inside because staffing and, and like a lot of fire attack was driven by vendors and, so you'd see, a, you know, it'd be common to see a firefighter standing 30 feet back, you know, spraying a, a fog, an automatic nozzle into a window when, you know, when we know that that, that stream has no punch, it's, right. it's empty, it's probably 75 gallons at most. And there's, you know, you, you sit there for an hour and keep that, you know, keep that house going. Or you could take your nozzle, get it close, get it steep, get it off the ceiling, open it up and knock the fire, you know, like. So like how you apply, and I'm not, and I'm not advocating for outside attack. I'm just saying like, that's something like that we're, we're, we're starting to learn now. Like, you know, um, how to, how to place your water inside. You know, yeah. and sometimes, sometimes those videos that you see is like, you're like, why is that, why is that guy doing that? It's like, I'm trying to show like the steepness of the angle, how to start high, you know, take the shape of the books, work it down, you know, wet the floor, walk, give a good wash down, take your time, do it slow. Like there's no reason to, you know, open up quick, shut down and move in like, and like, and run into the cone. Cause that's a lot of our, our training was foundational training was that like, you know, I come from a culture of like the centipede search where you hold onto the boot and you swing the howl again. And then everybody you know, comes from that. That's, that's ground zero for, yeah. yeah. And so like the point of the social media was like, once I started, you know, listening to national fire radio, getting outside of my comfort zone, going to conferences, it was like, you know, what I want to do is like, hey, maybe I could bring this back in small doses because 
one of my lessons I've learned is like passion is pa- passion is great, but it's like fentanyl, right? It's, yes. It's good in small doses, but it could be fatal if, 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 if done wrong. Right. So like I, my passion, you know, I, I have, it has to be deliberate. It, it could be a turn off to some. Sure. So I really got to focus on um, like, you know, where, where I fight my battles out now and the social media pages open that up. And so when I post something like, simple i can I see i, I kind of see the people in my area that like it but then you know and honestly it gives me street cred when you got like jeremy from national fire radio like you know <laughs> they like it because they look at that like oh well man like and then they go to your page like well this guy you know or the you know you got you got mickey from top floor or you know boogie down truck or these guys nick esposito and these people that they recognize it are, are these training content people and they're seeing that like they're given a heart or a like, you know, it's, yeah. I don't do it for the likes, but the likes that you guys do give, it gives it street cred. Like, yeah, this is, this is real stuff that's going on outside your culture, guys. Like, yeah, it, it's good. That so is, I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I, you know, when, when you have people, you know, it should be said that it is a closed group. So everybody listening to this episode is not going to be able to follow your page because it's, it's designed for your people and so on. So I, I should throw that out there because people are going to be like, what's the social media page? Blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? I'm sorry. But until until Cameron's ready to share it. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> it's guys. Private. It's yeah. not intentional. It's, no, it's I get very it. deliberate of who it's pointed at. Like, yes. It's, it's for the people that are on it. Like, yes. That's it. And, and I should say this, right? Like, be you are... God, I keep coming back to it, and it's underlined on my on my notebook page here. It's intentional, like intention. Intent matters, and it makes a difference. And when you're when you're thorough and systematic in your approach, it becomes intent. And when your intent is good, when your intent is there and designed to make us better, you will win. You will win. And I I think what you do is intentional. And in even this conversation today. Every point that you've brought forth is intentional. And it's obviously the type of individual you are. And and I recognize that from the minute we met in our conversations. And I've just absolutely enjoyed our friendship over the last few years. It's unfortunate. I've been trying to get back to Napa. And then uh, once with COVID screwed all that up for me um, and so on. But, I mean, I can't wait to get back and to, to see you again and, and so on and, and visit the area um, and so forth. But... What else excites you, man? I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're going to be wrapping up shortly on this episode. That's how quick these go. But, like, what wow. else? Yeah, I mean, we, we hit on mentorship. We hit on the, the WUI, right, the Wildland Urban Interface. And I really enjoyed that conversation and that part of this because it's so foreign to me, and I think a lot of people listening are not familiar with it either. So absolutely appreciate how you talked about that. We talked about the intentional uh, delivery of training and what that does. You got anything else that's a hot topic for you? Exciting? Well, yeah. How much time we got? We got <laughs> listen, I, you can have as much time okay. as you want. One one thing I kind of had to go back and, and reflect on after all these major fires was uh, two and two out and how it really oh hit it yeah to the to the fire service and like and you know b- before I get into this I'm not saying like two and two doesn't matter like it, it's a good policy but uh, I think it's been misunderstood so like, a lot of these searches and grabs that we were getting was uh you know one person taking like i'd split my company up like you take that house i'll take this house and we were doing full-blown searches of pretty well involved houses by ourselves like it was it what you know and in the, in the kind of the understanding it's like man like what about two and two out okay we just won't say anything because we had a misunderstanding of the intent of two and two out 
so I started doing a deep dive and, you know, and obviously I went to all our, our typical training resources like IFSTA and I read their, and I, and I read their explanation of it. So I decided to kind of cruise on over to the actual OSHA website. And if you want to look it up, it's uh, OSHA1910.134G4. And, and really uh, what I found is, is that, uh, you know, this term known rescue does not exist. So known rescue comes from IFSTA. Uh, it, it's nowhere within the language of, of the OSHA. So I'm going to read this uh, verbatim from their website on OSHA. Um, it says it also does not prohibit firefighters from entering a building or burning structure to perform a rescue operation when there's reasonable belief that victims may be inside. And so that, and, and they highlighted that. It says when there's a reasonable belief that victims may be inside. So that is the opposite of known rescue. And for me, a known rescue is someone you see them in the window waving. Like that's to me as a known rescue. Otherwise, like it, it's a kind of an unknown. So when there's reasonable belief now, you know, you could look at all the studies and uh, I, I, I challenge you to tell me a time when it's reasonable to believe that someone's not in their house nowadays. Like there's, you know, they're occupied 24 hours a day, especially with COVID one third of the population, you know, works the evening and sleeps during the day. There's really no way, you, you know, you can't really stand there and say there's a reasonable belief that this home is not occupied, especially at night, especially in a residential set. And, and this is in a residential setting. So it gives you, it gives us two and two out allows us to do searches is what I'm trying to get at. It's and then I'll continue to read. It's only when firefighters are engaged in the interior attack of an interior structure fire, fire, the two out requirement applies. And they, they even double down and they say, um, there's a bullet point, note two to paragraph G, nothing in this section is meant to preclude firefighters from performing emergency rescue activities before an entire team has been assembled. So what they're trying to say is like, if you're doing fire attack, you gotta have two and two out, but we're not including looking for people. And so I had to go and like, like really dive into this. And so I actually went and called um, Nick Gleiter. He's the area manager for our Cal OSHA. Uh, and I, and I kind of gave, gave him our interpretation of two out. He was disgusted as, as the enforcing officer and as a father. He's like, you guys are telling me that you guys really, really show up to a house and wait until a second unit gets there to go look for people. I was like, yeah. I said, we applied, we, we applied two out to every structure fire. You know, and then people say, like, and, and we say, like, if there's a known rescue or it's in the incipient stage, both of them, you can't tell. Both of those indicators, you can't tell from the outside. Right. You can't tell me that there's an incipient stage fire from the outside. You can't tell me that there's a rescue from the outside. So he was he was shocked. He's like, look, guys, you guys, you guys are completely out of line. He's like, this, this is the intent for the SCBA when interior firefighting started in 1971, whatever it was. This, this is only focused around the initial attack line or the fire attack line, not your search. Like you guys are, so like, that's something that that's a rabbit hole. I've been going down a lot lately. I got tons of information. If you're interested, look, man, I mean, I could, I could talk hours on that, but no, but I, you know, so when, yeah, no, I mean, so God, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, because mm -hmm. you know, when, when the two and when the two in two out came out years ago, I remember, I remember when it first became like a thing, right? And I remember in my area, they were like, how are we going to address this? There's going to be times where we don't have sufficient staffing to allow for it at the get and all this stuff. And for you to, for you to do some of the, 
homework of what we all assumed. And basically, I mean, there's plenty of times where that rule goes out the window and, and we can find plenty of reason why, um, you know, but to hamper operations or to limit property, cons- you know, property conversation, converse- <laughs> conservation <laughs> and, and life, you know, management. I mean, you know, we have a job to do. We have a job to do as firefighters. We're sworn and trained to do so. And we shouldn't allow ill-written policy or falsehoods to drive what we believe should be our norm of operations. And, you know, frankly, I mean, I, you know, I, I just, I struggle with that. And, and the two in two out is, you know, I understand the, the concept and I understand the reason why, but man, I'll tell you right now, if there's a, uh, there's always suspected life hazard in my world. So we're going in, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I really like that. They said reasonable belief. Cause then I reasonable belief. Yeah. Friend. Yeah. Then I went to talk to my lawyer friend and he gave me the definition. He says, a uh, reasonable and prudent man law, and this is a legal definition, a, re- a reasonable man is a term commonly used in criminal law. The standard is used to judge the conduct of an ordinary person only. <clears throat> Usually persons with greater than average skills or special duties to society are held to a higher standard of care. For example, a firefighter who aids a person in distress is held to a higher standard of care than is an ordinary person. So this is what's going to happen. This is the way I see it. Like, I think a lot of us, the way I was trained was like, Hey man, like if I go in there, I'm going to get ripped by the chief and I'm gonna have to explain to the chief why I went inside and the way it's really playing out now. And you can see it currently in the media this week and last week is that no, now you're gonna be sitting on the stand with a prosecuting attorney, you know, uh, against the family say, why didn't you go in? And you're, you can't, you can't, you know, two and two out. What it says it's, if there's reasonable belief that someone may be inside Cameron, like what was your reasonable belief that nobody was inside? What are you going to say? Oh, there wasn't cars parked out front. There wasn't a light on, uh, you know, there weren't toys in the yard, all that other garbage that we use to kind of, you know, decide whether we're going to go in or not. And, and like, it's just not going to work out. And they're like, you're going to say, well, it's a two and two out. So I, I can't, I wouldn't be able to sit on the stand during the prosecuting attorney while there's a grieving family in the courtroom and try to explain why I didn't think it was, uh, occupied but you know i guess i guess what people are probably hearing right now what i'm saying like two and two out is you know garbage that's not what i'm saying but your decision making on whether you go in or not should not be based on two and two out it should be based on you know your fire conditions your intakes situational ppe and your training yeah yeah but two and two out should not be part of your of your size up of whether you go in or not like that's it's not it's not going to be in your favor if you ever had to defend yourself. I'd like to believe uh, that in my world, every single structure that I'm responding to has a potential life hazard. And it's my duty to make sure that whatever potential life hazard there is, I can try to mitigate that to the best of my ability. And me standing outside waiting for another company to arrive before I can push myself inside because I don't have any of those quote unquote, you know, factors that lead you to believe somebody's home. You know, we find through training all the time. We're like, Oh, you pull up in the middle of the night. Yeah. There's certain bedrooms. There's cars in the driveway, blah, blah, blah. You know what? All that's bullshit in this day and age, right? Mm-hmm. Like we should yep. deem all structures as a life hazard and we should perform the way we're supposed to as firefighters to make sure that we take care of life and property conservation and life comes first and we get our asses in there and we search that building until we deem it's unoccupied plain and simple i agree and you know and to think that just because you have one room and rooms going you know room extending the point of or the room of origin like there are places in that house that are completely fine to be in they're not 
they don't meet the requirement of an incipient stage. So Agreed. you may have one room that might be, you know, considered ideal H or be on the incipient stage, but the rest of like, you, you know, rooms behind closed doors, like those are fair game. Like you could be in there with your t-shirt on, like, let's, let's be honest. Like, so, you know, saying that you can't search searchable space, I think it's a cop out. I think you're right. <laughs> I I'm sitting here and I'm like, yep, I agree with everything you're saying. And, uh, you know, and frankly, like what you, what we've just talked about over the last hour with the amount of search that you guys perform under crazy conditions. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is right in your wheelhouse. If anybody can speak on this topic, it's a, a gentleman like yourself or companies like, like you guys that do this type of work regularly. I mean, you got, you guys are performing your, you're understaffed under and not not to the department's detriment. It's the situation right. that you're responding to. I mean, these incidents are well outside a considerable recognition that we have the right amount of resources and people from the get. You just don't. And it's either we're going to work or we're not. And you don't have a choice. And so you got to go to work. And ultimately, like you guys, if anybody can speak to this, it's you guys. And uh, I just think it's a testament to who you are. And the passion you have for the job and, and what you and, and your guys do daily, man. I This has been a fantastic conversation, brother. I am I so happy that you took me up on my offer to come on this show because I think you had so much to share today. And I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of this conversation. And um, don't sell yourself short, pal. You got a lot to talk about. And uh, well, I think you got a big future wonder- ahead of you. Well, hopefully this this probably explains why the guy with the brush jacket has so much passion about search. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that. "Why are you you're you're a wildland guy? Why are you so passionate about yeah. search for?" It's like, dude, like, oh man, yep. come to California. <sighs> well, I want to get back. So, and I do. I want to get okay. back there. I've also heard that we could do press passes too, which would be pretty absolutely. Cool. So yeah, that is anytime. that is something that uh, I definitely want to look into as time ticks on. Uh, we got some opportunities and things we're talking about doing, and that might just be uh, a perfect opportunity for us to get involved and to really shine a light on what you guys do. I think would be a lot of fun because it would be a different take than your typical, uh, you know, news media press, if you will. And um, you know, our focus would truly be on what you guys do and and the conditions you operate in. I mean, I just it's a great opportunity. I'd love to be able to hop on that. So we got to look at that down the road for sure, brother. Awesome. I hope next time you uh, you and Terry and possibly the kids come over, man, we're going to do a big lunch. We're going to do like a shrimp boil. We're going ah. to go big. So give us give us some heads up and we're going to. Well, we are we, looking at on having at least a lunch and dinner with us. Well, I'll tell you this. We are looking at uh, I'm trying. Well, I don't have to talk her into it. She's down. It's a matter of talking my kids into it. But I want to do like a two week road trip. Uh, I want to get one of those sprinter vans and hit the road. And yeah, uh, I want to explore like the Pacific Northwest and areas like that. But obviously, you would be on that stop list. So uh, I'm going to take you up on that offer. It's just a matter of when it happens. But uh, I would love to get back out and see you and see the country out there. It's absolutely beautiful. And uh, you're a beautiful human being, man. Cameron, I'm, I'm so happy that our paths crossed and, uh, and I get to call you a brother and friend. It means the world to me. Amen. So I appreciate you. My brother. Thank awesome. You, well, listen, stay right here. I'm going to sign off the podcast and, uh, and then I'm going to get right back to you. So hang out. Okay. 
Everyone, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the National Fire Radio podcast. Cameron Gangbin. This guy was a rock star today on this episode. Brings a lot to the table. Cal Fire, the West Coast. It's a whole different animal than what I know on the East Coast. And I valued this conversation today and his friendship. Uh, unbelievable guy bringing a lot to the table. Uh, to further the conversation, we'll put his contact information and, uh, and where you can find him. Uh, in the narrative of the podcast. And uh, do me a favor. Take this conversation that you listened to on the podcast today. Take it to the kitchen table and talk about it because when we talk about the job, we're making the job better. We'll see you at the next one. Thanks for tuning in. Jeremy, National Fire Radio.